Oops. The OCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, November the 21st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer of the program. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. So, winter storm warnings in effect in many parts of the province. Apparently some significant snowfall in central and west on the west coast. So... A lot of complaints flowing in, especially from the town of Paradise, about the lack of snow clearing and salt down. I mean, it was pretty slick in my neck of the woods this morning, and it might be where you live, so be careful, even if you're not seeing a bunch of snow-covered roads. Complaints from Cornerbrook to Port of Basque and the conditions of the highway, so it's endless. If you want to take it on or talk about it, we can do exactly that. And if you're in St. John's, and it's probably true for other municipalities as well, Garbage collection postponed today, so the bins aren't blown all over the road. So if you wheeled out your black bin, wheel her back in. No garbage collection today. Speaking of garbage, the old Saturday dump run. So I was down there this Saturday afternoon. It was pretty busy at the dump, but that is, that's expected on the weekend. But one thing that I noticed, and then when I was flicking through Twitter, other people noticed the exact same thing, is the number of unsecured loads. It's truly remarkable. So while we spend tens of thousands of dollars to shut down the outer ring roads to clean up what inevitably has blown out of the bed of someone's truck, why don't we have someone representing the city with a big ticket book right there at the dump, exactly where people are heading with their truck full of grout, and give them a ticket if they have an unsecured load? I mean, it costs us tens of thousands of dollars to clean up after them. And I would, I'm just going to guess now, if there was 40 trucks, then there was 30 Unsecured loads, 30 out of 40, so maybe we can do something about that. A uh, quick update on the Growlers over the weekend. Got an OT win, but they got shut out of 2-0 loss yesterday. That's too bad. Let's talk Newhook. Abby Newhook, what a weekend she had. So she scored a pair of goals in a 3-1 victory, including the game winner. It's her third multi-goal game, 16th career multi-point game. Then she scored the OT winner yesterday or Saturday night. So that gives her eight uh, game winners in her career. Last year with six, she was second in the nation, so way to go, Abby Newhook. And this is an interesting one as well. Claire Howe, have you ever heard that name? Claire Howe became the first woman to referee the St. John's Junior Hockey League game, the highest level a female has ever refereed in the province. Congratulations to Claire. And an interesting one, as you've heard me bemoan the fact there's no men's volleyball team at Memorial University. This past weekend, in a matchup between UNB and Dow, there were seven Newfoundlanders and Labradorians on the rosters between the two universities. That's the most represented province in that game. So seven of the boys up there playing because they had nowhere to play here. Anyway, let's keep going. Uh, what's this one? Oh, Toy Story. In my stay-at-home dad years, Toy Story was a pretty big hit. It was the first computer-generated feature film. It was released in 1995. Okay. Someone brought this forward in my email, and I think it's a fair point to be asking. We wonder when government's going to show their hand regarding recommendations inside the Green Report and whatever's inside the Rothschild report. And this is about government-owned assets and the potential to sell them off. In exactly what form, we don't know. We saw the Green report. We haven't been able to see the Rothschild report. But specifically about the NLC, it's an important question. And it's a bit of a confusing conversation sometimes because people say, why sell off the NLC if it returns a couple hundred million dollars to the province each year? Fair enough, but it also comes with significant overhead. 
So we don't even know exactly what it means to potentially send off the, sell off the NLC or bull arm or motor vehicle and or the oil assets, which would be a big one. But the question posed by an emailer was, why but why does a monopoly, that is the NLC, spend so much money in advertising? I mean, think about it. They're the only game in town. But these big, uh, glossy catalogs that they send out have to be extremely expensive to, one, print, and secondly, to distribute. So it's a fair question posed by that person. Why does the NLC spend so much money on advertising? I still do not get it. And inside the world of the NLC, remember, of course, one of the things that the federal liberals did do is legalize cannabis products. Whether it be about public safety or criminal justice or the criminal element, Whatever the issue was, it also included money. But Canadian investors have lost over $130 billion investing in cannabis companies. Now, their sales are strong, but there's still a big illicit market out there, especially in the world of the edibles. So there's a cap of uh, 10 milligrams of THC in the edibles that the government is selling, the regulated industry is selling. But on the street, as they say, it's much more than that. But Canadian investors, where we thought it was going to be a big boon to the provincial treasury, not so much. Big boon to investors. Nope, $131 billion in losses in the cannabis business. That's unbelievable. All right. uh, Speaking of uh, cannabis and hydroponics, it's pretty remarkable to me that when we talk about the price of food and access and food insecurity, what have you, the one item that's getting an awful lot of attention is lettuce. So one of the news outlets went out to a professor. This happened to be in California. One of the problems with the lettuce business right now is, of course, a drought in California for a couple of years, some blight that has caused interruptions to supply, and consequently, the price has shot through the roof. Ten bucks a head of lettuce. I mean, restaurants aren't using it. Some restaurants aren't using it and what have you. But the expert went on to suggest that Maybe we can grow more. (laughs) It seems pretty fundamental, doesn't it? If we're going to have issues with importation and cost, maybe, just maybe, we can grow more of our own product here, including lettuce. So there's a couple of big hydroponic setups here already in the province. This one fella, he produces 800 heads of lettuce a week, thinking he's going to be able to expand that by a large margin. But we understand the technology. Yes, startup costs might be significant. So whether it be greenhouses, traditional greenhouses, and community gardens, and backyard farming, and homesteading, and hydroponics, we surely can figure this out. Because it makes absolutely no sense that we don't grow more here. So whether it be uh, Dwight Budden out at Living Water Indoor Farm, or Greenhead Growers, uh, co-operator Timothy Collier, he's the one quoted in this story, he plans to expand to grow about 6,000 lettuce, heads of lettuce in the next year. So yeah, makes a bit of sense to me. Why don't we grow some more of our own product if you want to take it on? We can do it. I think this is an important question. It would be nice to get some more information. And this is about the expansion of the emergency room at uh, the Health Sciences Center. So when the province, in the most recent budget, budgeted $10 million, and then when the contract was finally awarded, it was for over $40 million, can someone explain to me how that worked? Because, yeah, sure, increased cost, whether it be labor or materials, okay, but not $30 million worth. So... How did the government or the Department of Finance or whatever consultant they used to come up with the price tag of $10 million, how were they so far off the mark? Because the four bidders were all in the $40 million range, from 40.5 to 44.2, I believe the number was. So, yeah, it would be nice to get a bit of an explanation as to $30 million difference between April and November. Hmm, something, Something bizarre there. Anyway, stick with the world of health. 
For months, there's been a shortage on the shelves of children's cold and flu medicines. And many of you have seen that and experienced that problem. So now when the federal government has secured foreign-produced children's pain and fever medication, so they ordered a million bottles. And they should be arriving and seen on the shelves this week, this week, next week. So we see it out there. The bunch, the bunch of children that have the hacking cough is really quite something. So the numbers of RSV, flu, COVID, okay. So hopefully the supply will get to your retail outlet and or your pharmacy to its suite. So the imports are for ibuprofen coming, but the liquid ibuprofen and liquid acetaminophen. Ibuprofen from the United States and acetaminophen from Australia. So, you know, that's the good news. Uh, the demand has just outpaced supply, even though the manufacturers has ramped up to their maximum capacity. But like most things, when we see a bit of a shortage for a while, actually this one was a very real shortage for months, the caution is to please don't hoard it. You know, I get it. As a parent, when your kids are sick, you want to be able to do everything possible to help them get better. And there may indeed be more colds coming from your child somewhere over the winter months. But the shortage can be further exacerbated if so many Canadians are willing to hoard uh, so many bottles of these cold and flu medicines. So maybe just consider not doing that as we try to get through it. And we can't talk health without talking mental health. Extremely sad loss for the province. Dr. Nazir Lada has died. He was on a vacation with his wife in Egypt. So Lada was a former president of the Canadian Psychiatric Society. He was notably one of the province's top psychiatrists. He practiced forensic psychiatry. He testified in many of these big headline-grabbing trials. But Lada was also a real force on the advocacy world. It's a big loss for the province. And, you know, people like Lada, unless you've been dealing with him or, and or mental health services, probably don't understand just how important he was. He was a very thoughtful, kind, but forceful man. And it's a terrible loss. One suggestion that came in to uh, my inbox today as well was that, you know, with the new mental health facility, might it be uh, a suggestion or an option to name it after Dr. Latta? So we all know the issues with uh, securing access to long-term mental health services. And Dr. Latta, one quote that I read in the news story this morning, he's talking about the need for long-term mental health service. He says, these are chronic conditions just like diabetes, just like hypertension is, and they need long-term care. Our condolences to Dr. Lada's family, three sons, Justin, Michael, and Jonathan, and his friends and the mental health community. Dr. Lada, dead, I believe at the age of 80. Terrible, but he was a giant of a man. I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Lada on a couple of occasions and a couple of interviews here on the program, maybe once on Out of the Fog as well, but that's really quite a sad piece of news to read over the weekend. Okay. We've been talking about and the complications and the issues surrounding the fact that the Roman Catholic Episcopal Corporation of St. John's had to sell off so many properties to cover the compensation for the victims at Mount Cashel. And, of course, the compensation is, is due and just. So it's going to cost as much as $50 million. It looks like they're almost at the end of the sale of the properties in the metro region. Now the attention gets turned to the 70 properties in more rural parts of the province. So whether it be on the southwest uh, Avalon and down the Buren Peninsula. You know, we had one lady call last week, and her concern, of course, she's upset that the church is being sold, but it may see a restriction of uh, access to the graveyard. 
And then further ripple effects, like, for instance, the folks at St. Vincent de Paul and the food bank that's at Corpus Christi. What happens when that goes away? They can't afford to rent space. So there's lots of different implications beyond just the congregants, the parishioners. But if you are someone who you know one of the 70 properties is going to impact your world, we absolutely can talk about that. But it looks like they've wrapped up much of the process here in the metro region, and now we'll be doing the exact same thing in rural Newfoundland. Okay, uh, the place that the RC Episcopal Corporation actually, quote-unquote, owns the property. All right. Rightfully so, the province is talking about putting some pressure on the federal government to put some search and rescue capacity in Labrador, in particular air and marine search and rescue capacity, because we know there has been an increase in the provincial budget for ground search and rescue, and we all know the sad stories, Burton Winters and Joey Jenkins, Mark Russell, we all know these tragic stories. So the government is saying because of one of the 17 recommendations in the recent public inquiry into ground search and rescue operations, one of the recommendations is for increased capacity for Labrador, marine, and air search. We all know this ridiculous. There's none. There's absolutely none in Labrador. Now, the minister responsible federally, Joyce Murray, on this program said, that, well, there's a search and rescue vessel in St. Anthony. We need fixed-wing aircraft. We need fast rescue craft. And we need it now. For folks in Ottawa to not understand just how problematic this is, is mind-boggling. So it's good for the province to put the pressure on, but when we talk about recommendations that have come from public inquiries, important to note, like back to the uh, uh, Alec Hickman-led inquiry in the aftermath of the Ocean Ranger sinking, one of those recommendations established a full-time 24-7, 365 search and rescue uh, capacity in St. John's. Hasn't happened. Hasn't happened. But anyway, if you're in Labrador, you want to take that on. I think that's a big one. Talk about public inquiry. Entering into the final week of the public inquiry into the invocation of the Emergency Measures Act, this is a big week. We've heard from police. We've heard from some of the organizers of the protest. But we also, this week, will hear from some of the key members of government. Emergency Preparedness Minister Bill Blair, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendocino, Intergovernmental Affairs Dominic LeBlanc, Justice Minister Lametti, Defence Minister Anand, Transport Minister Alagra, uh, Finance Minister Freeland, and yes, the Prime Minister and some people working in the PMO. We don't know what the outcome will be when they finish up all the testimony and they go back and commit uh, to a, a report, but... If you've been following along and you'd like to offer your thoughts on what's happened with any of this, fair enough. And also, questions being asked about the fact that CSIS released a report. Actually, the CSIS director, David Vigneault, is going to testify this week as well, even though a report that we've already seen from his outfit said that he did not see the need for any jeopardy to national security. So anyway, but what happens with any of these reports? Anything? Nothing? But anyway, if you want to talk about what you've seen in that public inquiry, we can tackle it for sure. How are we doing, uh, David, on the phone? Oh, the other note, federally. There's apparently a report that also says that the Chinese government directly meddled in and invested in as many as 11 candidates in the most recent federal election. The prime minister confusingly says that he's not been briefed on this, even though at the same breath we're told that he brought it up with President Xi of China in the most uh, recent G20 summit. So which is it? You've seen the report, you've been briefed, or you haven't. And who are these candidates? Where are the names? This is not playing petty politics. This is important stuff. So it would be nice to have the Prime Minister consistent on this one, which he's not, and to know who these candidates are, because why wouldn't we want to know that? All right, a couple of quickies here. They haven't had a bank or a financial institution on Fogo Island since August. 
you know, people will think that, well, you know, how is that a big deal? Well, it is a big deal. You've got to take a ferry ride. You've got to drive 130 kilometers to Gander to do just fundamental banking. So it's a full day to go to the bank. Now, it gets more complicated than that, though, because if you hear from business owners on Fogo Island, they point out the obvious. If I take that journey to do my banking in Gander, then, of course, I'm going to take advantage of the shopping opportunities at the big boxes like Walmart. So as opposed to buying some of your necessities and staples and other goods where you live on the island, you're going to come home with the truck or the car full, aren't you? So consequently, it's going to have a real impact on the businesses on Fogo Island as well. So they've put a survey out there to the residents of uh, Fogo Island and said, you know, if we can get the credit union, for instance, to come to town, will you switch your account from Scotiabank to the credit union? They're going to present that to the credit union while they evaluate whether or not they'd like to make their way to Fogo. So it's not just as simple as you can't go to the bank. It has an absolute impact on the local businesses. Of course it does. As we'd like to do, we want to leave on a fairly positive note. Oh, I had a couple I wanted to say. If you're on Twitter and we talk about the price of stuff in the grocery store, there's a fellow named Chris Donovan. I follow him on Twitter. He does all the legwork for us in looking at the issues surrounding some sales and, you know, perusing the flyers. So his handle on Twitter is WalkingManNL. WalkingManNL, Chris Donovan. He sent out one over the weekend, and I took advantage of it. I, tr I retweeted it, and I'll continue to do so, because we're all trying to save a buck, and Chris Donovan is helping to save a buck. So bravo, and give him a follow on Twitter at WalkingManNL. And lastly, say good morning to my friend and a fellow who I've done a lot of events with over the years, down at the Sheraton Hotel, Ken Richards. He's the food and beverage outlet manager. He celebrated 50 years as an employee of the old and the new hotel. So started when he was 15, and for 50 years, dapper Ken Richards has been a feature, uh, a familiar face at the Sheraton Hotel. Extraordinary to have 50 years of working life, let alone at the one place for its entirety. So congratulations, Ken Richards. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Really nice guy is Ken. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That only happens when you call. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number two. Sylvester, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning to you. I just want to make a comment on uh, the latest news item you mentioned in your preamble about the shortage of lettuce in the province. The restaurants have taken off their menu because of short supply and the cost. Yeah, I think it's more mostly a cost issue, for, especially for the restaurants, but yep. Yeah. Well, I think we missed the golden opportunity here some years back. And it was all due to immigration regulations. And I think it was in 2017, well, the father and son came here from China to build a greenhouse and to grow lettuce and other <coughs> produce. They built a greenhouse on Argentia Access Road, which measured 65 meters, I think, in length, uh, seven and a half meters wide, and three and a half meters high. This facility was capable of producing. Uh, lettuce for sale in this province. It would introduce, I, I think, in my opinion, I might be wrong, uh, new technology in growing such uh, a produce. It would be a vertical, <coughs> vertical growth. Each grower would produce 60 head of lettuce in 60 days. The greenhouse could accommodate 
450 vertical growers <coughs> and produce 135,000 heads of lettuce in a year. There will be five harvested in a year in a period of 300 days. And the other 65 would be cleaning out of the greenhouse uh, after every fall. Those people had to give up and go back to China because they, they could not get anywhere with immigration because they didn't have a level five anymore. Both father and son had university degrees in agriculture from some university in China. They produced all this information. So they had, they had to return to their hometown, China, and start over over there. And uh, I think it's all to the means of the regulations that, that uh, immigration has with the federal government here in the province. Now, other provinces have different levels for languages. Uh, like the, some provinces have level three and level four, and some don't have any if people are investing in the province. And those those two gentlemen, father and son, made a significant uh, investment here in that greenhouse. So I think we missed a, a, a golden opportunity to, to uh, not to accommodate them and to approve them or change the regulations whereby they would, uh, they would be allowed to stay here until they, they were brought up to level five. And when Mr. Fury came to power and became premier, I think one of his early statements that he made, he wanted to see a robust immigration program. Over a year ago now, I think the federal minister was in the province and said that there would be a new agreement. And it would be by July 2022. Well, July 2022 was common past and there's nothing. And we still don't know if we, if we have an agreement or not. So that's my beef with it, Patty. Fair enough, Sylvester. I mean, if we're talking about doubling food production by 2030, it's got to come with all the policy changes required because it's not going to be all just the traditional root vegetables and or cattle farming. If we're going to see an expansion of hydroponic operations and what have you, let's embrace the technology. It's there. It's being widely utilized. Not enough in this province, obviously. But these are things where our food security issues, in some form, is a problem that we've created for ourselves. Now, I know there's going to be cost issues and regulatory issues, but... If you can't double food production without accommodating all the opportunities in front of us, including the new technologies that are maybe a huge startup cost initially, but it's to our collective benefit if we produce more. We only produce 10% of what we consume. It's just the balance is unmanageable, to say the very least. I appreciate you making time for the show this morning, Sylvester. Yeah. Thanks for taking my call. Anytime. Stay in touch. Okay. We'll do that. Okay, then. Bye, Sylvester. Uh, let's go to line number one. Vera, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. Um, I'm Colin. Um, I made an insurance claim um, on my house for damage, uh, water damages a couple of weeks ago. Okay. Anyway, um, my deductible was $5,000. Well, uh, like that, I understood, right? 
But they send this company in to my home to investigate the damages that was done. And um, they charged me $4,000 for the damages. And I had no idea that, uh, like, I was the one who had to pay for it. As far as I was concerned, that insurance company had to pay this company for coming into my home, right? So anyway, um, which that cost me $9,000 to, uh, and then uh, I took a buy claim from them because like the other way was uh, a lot more money and I could get somebody to do it for me for a lot cheaper. But anyway, just $4,000 that uh, I had to pay for those guys coming in to in the investigate my water damages. Uh, I don't understand like why I had to pay it. It was the insurance company who sent those guys. So did you file a claim? Yes. Okay. Yeah, you know, the adjuster, we had some water damage, I don't know, a few years ago, and I paid nothing out of pocket. Service master and the adjuster was covered while I filed my claim. Now I saw like, my premiums, which wasn't expected, but I didn't come out of pocket for either of those. So I'm not sure what to say as to why that happened the way it did for you. Yes. Well, uh, the one thing is, like, you know, uh, like for my uh, uh, my claim, like my deductible, I could understand what I had to pay, right? Because you you uh, there's a deductible which is on your insurance claim that you have to pay, like whatever you agree to pay is, Whatever, like some have fifty dollars, some have five hundred dollars, or a thousand dollars, or whatever. But that's to make your premiums uh, less expensive, right? But in the end, if you got to use it, well, you pay what your deductible is, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, for this four thousand dollars, which came in for this company, um, I can't say who they are, but anyway. Um, like, I'm just not getting it, and I talked to the insurance guy, and he said, well, like, you know, they come to your home, so you have to pay it. But, I mean, like, my understanding was if you make an insurance claim, uh, that if they send somebody to to your home, I mean, they should be re- uh, liable to be paying for it. Yeah, we've, like, I mean, I pay my deductible when I, you file a claim and it gets approved, but... You know, as I said, the adjuster's fee and or the cleanup crew, in this case it was a service master who did a great job, uh, I did not pay that out of pocket. So when you asked this question of your insurance company, they said what? They told me uh, that it was in the policy that you had to pay it. Like, you know, I just don't understand it. Uh, I've talked to several people about it, and um, they tell me that they never ever tell the like. Yeah, I'm surprised too, to be honest with you, Barry. I'm sorry that it happened to you. I mean, I suppose, like everything else, we should be very careful knowing what we've got ourselves into with our insurance policies or anything else. Uh, anyway, $9,000 is a lot of cash to come out of hand with while you're trying to deal with getting the water damage repaired. It's a real shame, Vera. Would you like to tell us anything else while we have you this morning? Well, um, like I'm trying to get up to my insurance broker now to to get this 
like, I mean, I'm not going to give up. I don't care if I get to get a liar to do this because, like, to me, I, I think that there's really something wrong there. Let me know what your broker says. Yeah, I will. Yeah, please do exactly that, Vera, because I'm curious to hear the other side of this story. Yeah, because, like, you know, it, it's brutal. I mean, like, you, um, okay, uh, this home been there for 30 years. I've been insurance on them for 30 years. So, in other words, I could go and pay my premiums that when I'm paying it to this insurance company, go and put it in a bank account. And I have no insurance on my home, and in the end, I would be paying off better than what I am right now. Absolutely, a hundred percent. So keep us in the loop when you find out more from the company. Okay. Well, I'm going to get on to my company, but I said that I was going to put it out there today, and I would like to uh, tell the people out there that. They better check into things with their insurance company before they go making claims. Or if not, they'd be in the same boat that I'm in. I mean, I'm just after losing like $4,000 off of my claim because I had to pay this this company for coming into my own. It's sound advice, Vera. Hopefully people will take you, take you up on it. And thanks for this this morning. Good luck. Okay, and thank you very much. You're welcome, Vera. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, tons of time for you. Don't go away. Save the date. VOCM's Dial a Carol. Sunday, November 27th, 1 to 6 p.m. on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the chair of the Food Producers Forum. That's Dan Rubin. Good morning, Dan. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Good to talk to you. You're doing a great job. I there. appreciate and- that. And and I'm happy to chime in, even though I'm far from home at the moment. I am standing at a friend's house in Bridgewater, Nova Scotia, on my way back from a regional conference called Dig In, the Atlantic Food Summit that gathered about 185 representatives from across our region to talk about exactly the same issue you're talking about, which is food cost, food availability. And my assessment is that we've made, we, we've made, there's a bunch of illusions, confusions, and mistakes that have been made. I'm actually familiar with the story that Sylvester was talking about, the Chinese family. I know people who live in Torbay who are trying to help them stay here and do their greenhouse project. And people may not know this, but across China, there's thousands of acres under glass. And these are passive solar greenhouses. They don't eat a lot of energy. There's one operating now in Alberta, uh, run by a man named Jian Li. And the way this works is it's a building which is open to the sun in the south side. These are large buildings. And inside the building is a clay berm, a big pile of clay. And just like the greenhouse that David Goodyear runs at his homestead in Flat Rock, um, these absorb the sunlight and provide 90% of the heat through the winter. Um, we do have some uh, greens, some lettuce being produced here. It's being produced at scale uh, at Lester's Farm and also by Green Farm NL, which is a hydroponic operation in Mount Pearl. Um, I have lettuce growing in my garden that I planted in October. It's in a box under a plastic lid. I will be able to go out in February and harvest lettuce. So we have the simple technologies to do this. And the real problem is that people, you know the greenhouse story, you know the one I'm talking about, Mm -hmm. the one they 
tried to grow the cucumbers. What's the name of it? Sprung. Sprung. Uh, we're, we're pursued by the ghost of Sprung Greenhouse. So I recently made connection with a provincial department to get funding for six outreach sites across the province where we're helping people build greenhouses. And they turned to ACOA and said, greenhouses, uh, because of the ghost of Sprung. So we're tripping over our feet here. And we really need to address food security and food production. And it was quite wonderful. I spent uh, the 17th, 18th, and 19th at a place north of Truro called the DeBert Center, along with our new executive director, Samantha Young, four wonderful people from uh, Food First NL and people from all over the Atlantic region. There are so many solutions being cooked up by people all over the Maritimes and Newfoundland and right across the island and in Labrador as well. But uh, what the problem is that there's a bunch of assumptions that people make, public and government, about what we're doing. We don't really know how much food is being produced in our province. The figure that we import 90%, we only grow 10%, that's an illusion. That's not based on any real information. And uh, as I've expressed to you in the past, and I really thank you for your support and listeners for their support, Food Producers Forum, which is a three-year-old nonprofit group, not connected with government, although we have received some funding for some of our projects, but we're an independent, objective information hub to get more information and knowledge passed between people who are growing food, uh, we have a survey launched that we will actually extend to the end of the year, right to December 31st. And we desperately need to know what's actually being grown because so much food is being produced now at the community level. And uh, we have the survey launched, and I want to say to people, don't be worried that we're going to blow your cover because the survey is completely anonymous and we're not directly connected with government in any way. We need to know about home gardeners, community gardeners, the small producers who sell by the side of the road, uh, farmers, the fishers, the hunters. And we're trying to put together the information about how much food is actually being produced here and where generally and how it's being produced so we can get better support and awareness for the food we actually grow. I mean, we're, we're actually growing quite a bit of food here. It just isn't going to be found at Dominion or Sobeys or, or the Price Club. It's coming from different sources. Yeah, I think that's where the 9010 uh, issue comes to bear, is I think that's a grocery store issue, a retail issue, as opposed to not every morsel that's grown by someone in their own backyard or a community garden or what have you. I'm pretty sure that's how that number was always being utilized. But you're fair to point out that we're probably growing a lot more than we realize. It would be helpful to know exactly what's being produced. But I wonder, Will, you know, this most recent spike in food prices... Yeah. I wonder, will that exercise the ghost of Sprung? Because government can't be gun-shy of a $22 million trip up uh, decades ago. We've got to figure this out. Even through their own words, it's doubling food production. So we need municipal leaders to talk about you know, the required approach to backyard farming and homesteading. 
community gardens and then when we need some bigger thinkers when it comes to some more large scale opportunities whether it be the hydroponic issues that we see in a couple of different outlets here in the island because we've arrived at a point where we don't need to understand it this any further we know it we can see the landscape we understand what it means for the price point inside a grocery store or what have you so more has to be done and right away well, one of the illusions and one of the assumptions is that we can't grow food here, and that's nonsense. We yeah. always have, and we still can. And now we've got new technologies for growing it, but we've also got digital technology for distributing it, for sharing it more effectively and more equitably. And I'm, you know, way steep in this stuff these days. And what, everything you're saying, Patty, is right on. We have the capacity, but um, particularly at the municipal level, the regulations are really getting in the way. I have a small greenhouse on the side of my shed, and I make the best use of it. I have a neighbor across the road where I live who built an eight-foot-by-eight-foot greenhouse, hired people to build it, bought the materials, oh my God, at COVID prices, and the town charged her $125 in permit fees before she would be allowed to build it because for some reason they thought that putting up a little greenhouse in her backyard, which is barely visible from the surrounding properties, needed to be have a notice in the newspaper to see if anybody objected. And that kind of thing and the rules against chickens in your backyard and all of that is one of the major impediments. But people are still powering ahead with it. In actual fact, where that 10%, and now they would say 15% figure comes from, is not, as far as we can tell, grocery store sales, because they have a very poor way of keeping track of what's local. Local could mean a PEI potato, right? It comes from the quantity or the amount of crown land that the province has made available, regardless of whether it's been cleared, planted, or harvested. And therefore, it's an illusion. So that's why our survey, and people can participate, and if you're a home gardener or you know somebody who grows or if you grow and sell food, again, don't worry. This is anonymous. The survey won't, you don't put your name into it or, or anything. Um, go to foodproducersforum, F-O-R-U-M, dot com and fill out the survey. Even if you got a window box where you grow lettuce, we need to tote up what we have so we can make better use of it. But circling back to the ghost of Sprung, um, there are designs available from what's being grown by the Chinese model or the earth-sheltered greenhouse that we've developed for rural communities of very effective food production. And greens like letters are among the easiest to grow. You can grow them as David Goodyear does right through the winter, right through Snowmageddon. He was producing leafy greens at a cost of about $5 a month for heat because you don't have to heat to 20 to, to room temperature. If you keep it above freezing, about five or six degrees, you can grow lettuce and arugula and kale and chard and turnips and all these wonderful vegetables. And Here's an interesting perspective that was talked about quite a bit at the conference that I'm coming from. Um, the money that we're spending on health care because of our diet could be repurposed into agriculture, big, medium, and small, and people would be healthier. 
I mean, we're the least healthy province in Canada. We used to be the healthiest. We're the least food secure. We used to be the most food secure. And it's because of the change in where and how our food is produced. So growing food locally and distributing it fairly is why our group was formed. And and we're basically an information hub. We're collecting and sharing information to help shift the system in a more healthy direction. But I think you're right on with what you were saying, Patty, that we need a, I don't know what we need, a wake-up call. That's what we're trying to provide with our survey uh, about the fact that we have amazing capacity for food production outdoors and in greenhouses, hydroponically and in soil, aquaponics, which means you use fish to create the fertilizer for the plants, so many new options and old traditional ones that uh, if we don't do this work, it's not even just about $7 a head lettuce. It's about our survival because there's no guarantee a year from now or a year and a half from now that those trucks will keep coming. There's no guarantee. Yeah, there is no guarantee. We've got an issue that we really understand a lot more than we ever have in the past, and it's time to embrace the fast-tracking of producing more here. Uh, Dan, always good to have you on the show. Appreciate the information and your time. Well, once again, it's foodproducersforum.com. We've got about closing in on 500 responses to the survey, but we really need people to buy into it and support it. Uh, it is anonymous, and that way we'll, we'll have data that we can put in government's face, both municipal and provincial, and reroute some of the energy to support better local food production. And then the lettuce will come down in price. But anybody who's looking for greens right now, Green Farm NL is where you go. It's online, and it's a wonderful, heartfelt operation in good old Mount Pearl, producing beautiful leafy greens hydroponically, Green Farm NL. Appreciate this, Dan. Stay in touch. Thanks, Patty. Always appreciate it. My Bye. pleasure. Bye-bye. It's Dan Rubin. He's the chair of the Food Producers Forum. Uh, before the break, line number two, caller, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Great. How about you? Pretty good. I'd like to uh, keep an ominous. But anyway, uh, i got a question for you. Uh, the uh, COVID test kits that uh, the government is sending out to everybody, uh, these things are going to be going into community mailboxes sitting outside. Now, reading the box, the box says the storage temperature is uh, plus 2 to plus 30. Now, if these things sit outside in community mailboxes and freeze, are they going to give false, false readings? Very likely, yes. It's a curious question. Someone asked me last week, so I googled up a few links to see what I could find out, and the answer wasn't clear across the board. It kind of depended on the brand. Now, there wasn't a huge variance from brand to brand, but generally speaking, the average or the median that I could find was, if it falls below 3.3 degrees Celsius, you can indeed ruin the test kit. So it's an excellent point you're making. So I, I wonder why the government is sending things out to community mailboxes and not just to have people pick them up at uh, picking them up at the drugstores or the or the post offices or wherever instead of delivering them out to community mailboxes. I agree with you. Like in other provinces across the country, now you can go to the library and get them here. So that's one option if people are worried about the test uh, possibly freezing and becoming unreliable but yeah i mean in certain certain parts of the country you could go to the coffee shop or the restaurant or the bank or the library or wherever and get a test kit even if we just put them back where we had them in the past you know schools and long-term care facilities congregate living facilities and libraries 
and drugstores and coffee shops. And people wouldn't have to be, you know, rushing to the mailbox every time they see the postal, postal truck go away, uh, worried that their kit might freeze. So that's a good point. Good question. And the other thing is, too, why is the government encountering all this cost to deliver them to mailboxes? I don't understand it. It's a bit of a head-scratcher, but like many things, governments do. Okay. Anyway, I uh, just wanted to bring that up, Patty, and uh, enjoy your show. I appreciate the time and the call. It's a good point this morning. Thanks for this. Okay. All right, bye-bye. He's right. I read an article, or two or three articles last week, because someone asked me that exact question. What about the cold? And you can indeed spoil it. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number seven. Gary, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How you doing? Great today. How you uh, doing? First time caller. Welcome to the show. I'm just calling to inquire about that lady a couple of calls back about her insurance. Uh, I never got quite all the story, but uh, I don't know if I heard it right. Did she say that she had to pay the 4000 out of her own pocket or just the deductible? No, she had to pay both. So it was a $5,000 deductible, and the cost that she was billed for the adjuster to simply come in and evaluate the damage, she said it was $4,000, and she had to pay that, very much unlike my experience where I paid my deductible, but everything from service master to the adjuster was covered by my policy. Sure. Yeah, sure. I, I just don't uh, get it. I, I dealt with the same thing a while back, and, and now uh, I know my insurance, uh, I had a flood, same, similar situation. Uh, you call your broker and uh, file a claim. They came out, and their, whoever does their contract form comes with them, and they do adjustment on your home and the cost, and they go and they let you know how much it's going to cost. Uh, you have an opportunity to, to take a cash settlement or get the contractor to come in and do the work. But either way, my my insurance company, you pay a $500 deductible. So either way, you still got to pay that $500 deductible, whether you take a cash deal, it comes off your cash deal, or you your contractor comes in and does the work and you pay the $500 on top of or just a five hundred dollar deductible, and the contractor comes in and does the work, and that's how that's all the way I thought it works anyway. That's the way it's always worked for me, whether it be a claim against a, a damage to a vehicle and or damage to our home. So I'm really quite confused. That's why I asked her to get back in touch when she speaks with her broker, because I've never heard of it working that way. No, I, I think she's probably confused about uh, probably what it's going to cost for. Four thousand dollars. She assumed probably that she had to pay for it herself. I don't know. Well, she but she I, said she I already paid. I just called it. in concern anyway, so I just heard. I didn't know exactly what went on there, but uh, something not right there for sure. Yeah, hopefully she gets some clarification from the broker. And I asked her to get back in touch with us to let us know how it goes. So hopefully that gets settled. All right, Patty. Thanks for your time. I listen to your show every morning. Thanks a lot, Gary. Appreciate that. Yeah. See you later. Take Have care. Bye bye. All right, uh, let's take the break for the news on time. When we come back, John wants to talk about Newfoundland Labrador Liquor Corporation advertising. Good one. Ellen called last week. She's an 89-year-old senior out in Cornerbrook. She got banned from the seniors club where she liked to go play a game of cards, have a game of growl. We'll get an update from Ellen after the break as well. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. John, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Um, so in your preamble, and I know you've mentioned it a couple times in the past about um, why the NLC spends so much on advertising when they have a monopoly, and the shorter answer is they don't. Um, I don't work for the NLC, but I'm involved in the industry, so I have some insight into how it works. 
And essentially, all the suppliers, so any, anyone that has a product at the NLC, they're the ones that are paying for the advertising. 100%? So whether it's... Uh, I, I believe so. I'm not 100% sure on the specific details, but basically that's how they distinguish their products. So if you walk into the NLC and you know you want a California Pinot, for example, mm-hmm. then how do they distinguish, um, how do they make sure that their product is known to the public? So they'll pay the NLC to advertise that specific wine, whether it's in print media, digital media, or radio media. So all the individual suppliers pay the NLC to advertise their products in the market. Yeah, and they pay for product placements and stuff as, as well. Absolutely. And, and that's a fair point you're making, John. My question would be, does the NLC spend any of its own money on this type of advertising? I'm going to guess, and guessing is a dangerous piece of uh, business in this operation, but I'm going to guess they do. I've already compiled an email or composed an email, pardon me, to send over, see if I can't get a breakdown on advertising dollars, because what you say is absolutely true. There are products that are paying for advertising and or product placement, but the question is, how much on an annual basis, what percentage is covered by us? That's what I'm, I'm thinking. To, to, to be honest, I think it's it's probably either a revenue generating or at a minimum cost recovery model for them. You could be right. And I think, like for example, if uh, every year they'll they'll do calls for for various products, whether it's a you know a vodka, a rum, a wine, and producers from all around the world will put their products forward for them to to list their products on the shelves at the NLC. And essentially, the, the ones that commit more to spending in market are more likely to get listed on on the shelves. So if it comes down to a brand or a product that says, okay, we'll commit to spending $10,000 on advertising in market versus a, a smaller producer who might only be able to spend $1,000, it's the producer that is going to spend more money that's going to get their product listed because the NLC knows they'll get more money uh, to use towards the advertising. Yeah, and for me, I'm just interested in the info. So hopefully the NLC replies to us, because if that's the case, and they say that that's part of the couple hundred million they return to government, excellent. <laughs> Fantastic. So I'll just see if I can get a breakdown. I think people would be curious, because if they spend any money at all on that, it's questionable, because there's all kinds of ways for those individual product producers to advertise their product. But uh, fair point, an interesting piece of uh, information to add to the conversation, John. Sure, no problem. Appreciate that. All right, talk later. You too. Bye-bye. Or talk later, yeah. And they do. They obviously do spend money inside the covers of those glossy mail-outs. And, you know, when you see, when you walk into the liquor store and there's one product or another featured right there front and center, pay for that too. All right, let's go to line number six. Ellen, you're on the air. Hello? Hi, Ellen. Hi. I'm calling and was about the seniors club, Patty. I talked to you last week about it. Yes, ma'am. And I have abandoned from the club, and I don't know what the problem is. I can't get no answers from anybody. So just so people, uh, I'll remind them what we talked about. So Ellen's 89 years old, lives out in Cornerbrook, and through... She got a letter in the mail telling her she was banned from the seniors club where she used to go play cards. Now, there was allegations that she threw her walker across the room, and there was a big blow-up with someone she was playing against about whether or not she picked up the five in the kitty or had it in her hand, and consequently got banned. And you say you didn't throw your, uh, your walker anywhere, and you say you may indeed have had a bit of a temper when someone accused you of being a liar. So it's just too bad that they won't answer your questions because, I mean, it's something that you and so many other seniors look forward to. Get out of the house. Go down to the club, have a game of cards or whatever the case may be, but that's now taken away from you, so I think it's too bad. Hello? Yes, ma'am. Hello? Hello. Are you speak up, please? I'm just hard hearing. 
No problem, Ellen. So you can't get any answers. Uh, it was said to see yourself, and uh, this lady, I mean, she's a member of the club, so well as I am. I'm not to let sources mention any names. Okay. So I knew there was a different uh, attitude there, but I didn't know what it was all about. But anyway, I picked it up as I went on. Uh, you know, I assume there's three, uh, six more players coming in at the club which I never, ever played cards with. I might have played with them probably about 10 years ago, but not all that much. But those six people is coming at the senior club, and one of the members went around to every table one night and said, telling everybody, nobody don't want to play cards with Ellen. Now, this is the problem that I'm trying to find out, and I can't get no answers why those people don't want to play cards with me. I don't know. It's uh, it's an unfortunate outcome, though, that much I'm sure of. And, you know, why would people be like that in the first place, right? If you don't like playing with Ellen yourself, then don't play with Ellen. But walking around the room to say to tell all hands not to want to play with you sounds kind of petty. I don't understand why that I'm abandoned from the club because other people don't want to play with me. Why? Why is there a problem? Because they don't want to play with me. I mean, the club was for the people down there one night, and there was darts on one side of the club, and there was cards on the other. We were playing a fun game, and some people were playing darts. And she came over, one of the members came over to the table. She said, uh, we got a problem. She said, knowing the things out here and getting everything organized because she said a lot of people don't want to play cards with Ellen. And I said, sat there and heard her. Yeah, it's too bad. Now, I'd like to know the answer, and I'd like to know why that you don't want to play cards with me. I don't know. I wouldn't possibly be able to know what the uh, issue is for wh whoever is saying these things. But it'd be nice if even just the seniors club themselves got back to you. Because is it a reason to ban someone because someone doesn't want to play cards against you? I mean, it just sounds a little bit ridiculous to me. But I'd like to know more, and I'd like for you to be able to get a game of cards in. But I got a lot that graduate letter I had seen from the seniors club in Cornbrook. Yeah. Would it, if I would present you a copy, could I be able to send you a copy of that? Yeah, sure. Pardon? Yes, you ma'am, you can send me a copy. Now, my son probably would be able to email it to you. Okay. Yeah, I'm, uh, he'll be able to find my email address. It's a really simple one, and it's right on our website. Pardon? He can find that information right on the website at vocm.com. C-O-M dot com. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you on hold, Ellen. You'll speak with David again, and he'll give you whatever information you need. How's that? Okay, thank you. Okay, you're welcome. Bye-bye. And Ellen is on hold. Let's go. Line number eight. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, is this me? That's you. Okay, what I'm calling for is I was wondering if any of your listeners have any advice to give me about taking the commuted value with the government of Newfoundland and Labrador. Is the, the commuted value of a pension, so the lump sum? Yes. Okay. Well, I'm not going to give you any advice because someone would have to know your your financial circumstances to do exactly that. I suppose you could get some advice from a, a local financial advisor or possibly at your bank where, people would, where they'd know exactly what your circumstances are. But other than that, I wouldn't know what to tell you. 
I've went to both of those places. And they won't give you any information? They say that they can't give me an estimate of how much I would receive, and they need that information to be able to advise me. I went to Providence 10, and they can't give it to me until I terminate my position and retire, and then they can calculate it. But then I'm making a decision on an uneducated decision on the amount that I would receive. Maybe I'm not going to receive enough to retire on. Maybe I am, but I can't seem to get any answers anywhere. Okay, I'm going to give you a number. So there's a bunch of different organizations in the country that deal with pension-related matters. One is called Pension Solutions Canada. And I've dealt with them a couple of times in the past on behalf of folks. So I can give you, they have a toll-free number. They have a website too, simply pensionsolutionscanada.com. There's a calculator there to come up with what the value of the commuted uh, pension would be. But I can give you the phone number as well if you like. Yes, please. Sure. Maybe your viewers have some information. They've went through it or something. They could call in and give me some advice. Yeah, this this website and this outlet, they'll have a calculator there for your retirement, tips on the pension, retirement guides. There's a bunch of different services there. Estate planning is also part of it, but they're toll-free, and it's 1-888-554-5555. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. I'll phone them. You're welcome. Let me know how it goes. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, there's a couple of different calculators out there. And I think if I remember correctly, last time we talked about this, uh, McMaster University had a helpful tool available as well. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Dennis is there to talk about the crab fishery. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Dennis, you're on the air. How's it going, Patty? Not too bad. How are you doing? Oh, good. Uh, how's your weekend? I had a pretty good weekend. Uh, did a bit of cooking and cleaning, watched a bit of rugby and hockey. Nice and quiet. Okay, it's good down here. Um... I want to talk about, remember the last time I talked about the crab fishery? Has anyone on the fisheries uh, come to you yet on it or talk about it? About what in particular? Remind me. That uh, you mentioned the green crab and I mentioned the king and the killer crab. Did anyone in the government talk about that? No. Is is anyone going to have opinions to talk about that? Because that's what the people want. Well, I mean, the issue with green crab, which is an invasive species that can be really harmful, I don't even know why the government won't allow people to just go take as many green crab as they want. I mean, if it's a problem, why are we stopping anyone from doing something about it? I know that there's been a couple of chefs, and I believe at the Marine Institute, working towards ways that we can actually uh, cook a green lobster, produce different dishes from a green lobster, so that that one has never really made much sense to me. But the issue surrounding uh, different species of crab... As far as I know, it's only the snow crab that we even have a quota for. People don't want snow crab. They want king and and killer crab. And if they could get uh, green crab, green crab, that would be great. It's what the people want, and that's what I want. I, I, if I had a restaurant in the future, I could actually cook all this stuff if I had the right ingredients and the right stuff. Do you understand? My plan is to get a um, a restaurant on the go to have lobster, you know what I mean? 
I suppose, yeah. There's all kinds of different crab in our waters, including the Atlantic King crab. It's so, Roadward, uh, restaurants do downtown and around St. John's. Okay. You know what I mean? It's good sure. for the people. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't even know. I think we're going to try to get Keith Sullivan here this morning to talk about the fact that there's no stock surveys being done. Maybe I'll put it out there to him as to why the snow crab is the only crab that we go after, because there is indeed Atlantic king crab. There's stone crab out there as well, or toad crab, yeah, I think, is out there. There's snow crab, and people have a variety of choices of what they want. Yeah. And this is what restaurants and people want to go to the restaurants and have Whatever crabs that I have them one choice. Yeah, uh, I'll put it to someone in the industry because I'm not really sure. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. That should be, you know, this is what the restaurants were once in St. John's, Newfoundland, and around St. Newfoundland, around the bay. Okay, let me see what I can find out, Dennis. Okay. All the best, buddy. All the best. Take Merry care. Christmas. Anytime. Bye-bye. Uh, oops, that was a bit quick. Uh, let's go to line number three. Doc, you're on the air. Morning, Paddy. How are you? Doing okay. How you doing? Pretty good, boy. Bit of a blustery day, but uh, all things being equal, things are pretty good. Good to hear. I want to talk to you this morning for a few minutes, Paddy, and two things, really. Uh, one is I listened with some amusement last week to uh, the Premier's rant about reviews, reviews, and more reviews. Is and this course, about the Bradley Moss report? Uh, well, it was just generally, yeah, it was interconnected. But he was kind of whining about all these report, all these reviews that are being done and how they weren't necessary and so on and so forth. And I'm saying to myself, you know, your government generated or requested many of these reviews. And one in particular now that is of concern to me is the review, wherever it might be, and the uh, PUB and its review of the uh, uh, the price gasoline price control mechanism. Now, I mean that review was requested by the Fury government on the seventh of June. So we're now into six months, and it was requested to look at the suitability of the pricing mechanism, to look at the markup on a liter. And uh, it, it was decided to look at whether or not the um, uh, the review would generate a change in the formula. And the board, of course, uh, the PUB was directed to hold a public hearing. Haven't heard anything about a public hearing, but anyhow, apparently a consultant was engaged, and that consultant is the Calibrate Canada Incorporated. So they were hired, apparently, and they worked out a plan and a schedule for completion, and we're still waiting. So where is it? Six months. I mean, you can study Mars in six months. I and suppose. Uh, I was wondering where it is. I mean, is it on the Minister Sudley's desk? Is it still with the PUB? Is it up in Central Canada with Calibrate Canada? Uh, you know, all we want is a review of the formula, and public input? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's obviously a different formula being used here than anywhere else in the country. It because is. when we look at the increases and or decreases, we're not in step with other parts of the country. Our issues are not that much different. I know we have 
a little bit more consideration with uh, importation and distribution possibly, but not to the extent that we see the disparity, the difference between price setting here and price setting elsewhere, especially in Atlantic Canada. So I don't know where it is, uh, is the short answer. It'd be nice to see it. But just so people know what you were getting at off the top about the Premier upset about uh, all these different reports. It all started with the Citizens Report, uh, the Citizens Rep, Bradley Moss. That yep. was an investigation into what was going on at Elections NL. And his report came back, and it was really quite damning, and it saw Bruce Chalk suspended back in June, I'm going to say. And yep. then, of course, it was reviewed by request of the government by the former Chief Justice Derek Green. Yep. He wasn't quite as damning, but then, of course, his report was reviewed by the Commissioner of Legislative Standards, yep. and Chafe. <laughs> and so we do have three re- uh, two reports into the first report. And so, I don't know, it's a bit of a circular firing squad at this point. But and, you know, and on that point, uh, Bruce Chalk's term is up next month. And yeah, the question is yeah. now whether or not he'll be reappointed. He can indeed be reappointed if the Premier sees fit uh, for six yeah. more years after look uh, or the oversight for the longest, most expensive election in the history of the province and some of the allegations of gross mismanagement and nepotism and whatnot. So there's a lot on that bone. Yeah, and, you know, back back to the uh, PUV report, I mean... Uh, uh you know, the, the the thing that I still can't figure out is the interrupter formula. When we created the Consumer Group for Fair Gas Prices and ended up getting the creation of a regulatory mechanism so that the price would be set independently, the interruption formula was only supposed to be used very, very judiciously and only in the most extreme circumstances. Now it's being used so often that people have no faith in, well, let's hear what the price is going to be at 12.01 on Thursday because it changes again at 12.01 on Friday and it changes again at 12.01 on Saturday, which just defies logic. Yeah, it, it does. And, you know, just the recent changes in the commodity market is not good enough. Now, what I've seen someone else also point out, and they're not wrong, is that just because we know how the cake is made doesn't make it any tastier. It would be nice to know exactly why we use a formula unlike other jurisdictions. That's the key question for me. Because the formula, it would just have a bunch of variables that you pop in the sums and you come out with the result, as opposed to why we're using that particular formula. So yeah. that's the big question because, I mean, it's, it's enough. It's like a dog's uh, stomach buy. It's up and down, and you never know. Sure, I couldn't keep track of it. Someone sent me an email this morning. Did the stove oil go down over the weekend? I had to look. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It went down and made sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one other thing, Paddy. Uh, Corpus Christi Church in Kilbride in the west end of St. John's, hey? Uh, the church that uh, uh, was sold by Bishop Hunt, Peter Hunt, from underneath the, the feet of parishioners. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the church was 100 years old, goes back to 1923. In front of that church, donated by the Cody family in 1928, was a huge Christ statue that sat on a pedestal in front of the church. Now, that statue has been jackhammered down. So the pedestal, maybe it's evidence of desecration, uh, which is what the bishop has done to the church. The the pedestal and a part of it is now sitting in front of the church. The statue was hauled away. Where it went, nobody knows. Where it went, parishioners would like to know. Where it went, Peter Hunt won't say. So if anybody knows where that statue, and it's a huge, heavy statue with 
I didn't see it being taken down, but I, I talked to people who did see it. And, it, you know, it was trucked away. It was immensely heavy. They had to get a loader to take it off. And the mess was just left in front of the church. So if anybody knows, or if, the, if Peter Hunt knows and he won't say, uh, maybe Peter Hunt can call in and connect because he certainly hasn't connected with parishioners. The other thing I want to say in relation uh, to the Episcopal Corporation, and I only discovered this yesterday because without any consultation with the parishioners of the Archdiocese, there is now the old Episcopal Corporation has been disbanded. That was the corporation that caused and stood idly by when this whole mess was generated. And now there is a new Episcopal Corporation. So you've got to look at it in this way. People have to look at it in this way. The bishop has now created, secretly, a new Episcopal Corporation, while at the same time he has alienated most of the Catholic population in the Archdiocese by what he's done and how he's doing it. Now, how does that make sense? that you create, you're the creator of the problem, the Episcopal Corporation, then you create a new Episcopal Corporation, despite the fact that people have no faith in you or in the corporation. And by people, I mean parishioners. Figure that one out. Well, I I think inevitably it had to be restructured. It's not going to be a recreated entity like a new standalone 2.0. But of course, when you run up against the financial issues that they have, restructuring is just fundamental, isn't it? Well, yeah, but you involve people in it. You know, restructure. same people who caused the mess are doing the restructuring. And these people who are doing the restructuring, the Catholic population, for the most part, in the archdiocese have no faith in them because of what has happened. It's not, yes, there had to be some reconstruction, no doubt about that based upon uh, falling numbers and the cost of running so many churches. So, no doubt about that. Uh, uh, you know, the question for the bishop is uh, how it was carried out without any real consultation with people. And I know I was involved in Corpus Christi, and when I say it was sold from underneath the feet of the parishioners and the committee of parishioners, it was sold from underneath our feet by the bishop who refused to listen and simply said to us, you're not getting a priest. I will not supply a priest. Tough times out there for the congregants. There's no doubt about that. I don't know who's involved in the restructuring, but it's a fair question. I know there's a court-appointed monitor for uh, the for the people coming forward to lay claim, but I don't know about the restructuring, but I th- I'll see what I can find out. Well, and as I say, it's uh, t- tough to create a new body when the old, when parishioners have no faith in the old body who has now created this new structure. Got it. Right? Yep. So, anyhow, somebody needs to put the bishop in touch with reality. Well, we'll see if I can, I'll just see if I can find out, you know, who is involved in the restructuring, whether it be court-appointed monitors and or some independent body. I don't know, but I'll see what I can find out. I'd like to find, uh, not only I, parishioners in this parish want to know where that statue is and where it's going. And let's hope okay. it's not Robin Hood Bay. Hope not. I hope not, too. Be ridiculous. Okay, thanks for this, yeah. Dennis.
Okay, thanks, Take Eddie. Take care. You, you too. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye. All right, let's go to line two. Mark, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, you? It's, uh, I was wondering if you knew about the FTX scandal over in Ukraine. So, I'm you sorry, can you say that again? Uh, the FTX scandal. Uh, money landing with the Bitcoin and the uh, Oh, the, the FTX, yeah. Well, I mean, Bitcoin is a weird conversation in and of itself, but that company went upside down, costing people millions and millions and millions of dollars. Yep. Yeah. And, and there was know, a lot of it being financed, financing the efforts in Ukraine, too. That's true. And you know where else the money was transferred to? Where? Democratic Party in the United States. That's where all the money landed in the own land last year. Money laundering, of course, that's been a rally cry uh, for the pro-Putin people out there. Um, interestingly, if you look at the, it's called the Basel AML Index, and it talks about money laundering, and in particular, not political parties, but talk about countries. And if I remember correctly, the list went something like this. Number one country in the world that saw money laundering, and a lot of it came as disaster relief, Haiti followed by the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Then there was a collection of whether it be Mozambique, Myanmar, the Caymans. Way down the list was Ukraine. Uh, it was somewhere between Russia and the United States. The United States 83rd or 85th or something. So, yeah, if there is there some money being laundered in Ukraine, I would suggest yes. A lot of money. Yeah, it could be. I don't know how much it might be. 99 billion. Well, I don't know where you get that number either, but anyway. 90 billion or 99 billion, one of it. And uh, another thing there that the war in U with the Russia and Ukraine, mm -hmm. the Putin did not kill no kids on purpose. How can you possibly say that? I know, I, I know. Oh, okay. Um, um, I'll take your word for it, sure. He, 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 what he done, you know, the only reason why I went to the... Ukraine was the the uh, to bio labs. <laughs> yeah, it's all very altruistic. He's uh, he's noted to be one of the world's great uh, altruistic services. Yeah, sure. Okay. And uh, it's uh, money laundering and all that going on over there. I say, doctor, should be the richest country in the world. Appreciate this, Mark. So you're following along with the the war in Ukraine closely, are you? Yeah, oh yeah. Okay. Putin didn't, uh, the only reason why Putin went into the Ukraine was to, uh, to uh, disable the bio machine, bio, bio labs, and so it would save the children from the tunnels. Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, anyway, the atrocities on both sides are very, very real, and there have been civilians targeted. There's just no dispute there. The real problem with trying to get verifiable information out of Ukraine is, I mean, we're, it's political propaganda and spin everywhere you look. I mean, anyway, Mark, I'm going to take a break here now, but I appreciate your time. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Rob's in the queue. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number four. Good morning, Rob. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Couldn't be better. How are you doing? No, not so bad. Not so bad. Listen, I, I, it's something that's been burning my butt for 
the last couple of years there because the government uh, put this stupid uh, um, mandate on that everybody had to stay in house and stuff like that. But like, why didn't uh, the Rogers and Telus and everything like that? Like, we 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 couldn't get no TV. All 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 it was was repeats, and you had to buy extra if you wanted to do all these Netflix and all that other crap. Um, well, Netflix is a standalone streaming service. You know, you can, no matter who your provider is, you can get Netflix if you want. Yes, no, I understand that. But but the, the, the actual provider, like Rogers or Telus or anything like that, or Bell, like they, they, they don't give you nothing. If you want anything extra, you've got to pay for it. And that and that burns my butt because, like you know, you're you're locked inside, and you've got to you know, what are you going to do? It's been a long Locked time since in. anyone was locked inside. No, it has been. Yes, no. I, <clears throat> and like I said, it's been burned my butt for years. But, um, but uh, but even still, you know, they still don't do nothing for you. Um, everything is now streaming or whatever like that. So you got to pay another $6 a month or $5 a month or whatever like this. And that's absolute BS because, you know, like we, we pay for a service that's, you're only watching repeats. Yeah, of course, now, and TELUS is not in that business, but Bell is, and Rogers is, and Shaw is, and Eastlink, and there's other small regional providers across the country. So your complaint is that the for the base package on cable, you're not satisfied with what, what, with what you get? No, absolutely not, because okay. I'm, watching, I'm watching repeats of repeats. You know, and, and, it's, and it's been like that for years. Well, it's remarkable, isn't it? You can sit down and have hundreds of channels and be able to say there's nothing on. <laughs> and and like they, they um, like my my father always said, you know, when back in the days when you only had thirteen channels of, you know what, on TV. Well, I mean, I'm old enough to remember just uh, channel six and channel eight. Yep, me too. So, uh, talk about nothing on. Uh, you know, have you tried it, any it, of the streaming? It's just, un, it's just unimaginable that these people, you know, still making billions of dollars a year, you know, off of people who are, you know, they sit there, you know, stream this, stream this, stream this. You know, they're 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 making people pay more money. Yeah, and people don't have the money, but they're making them do it. Right, for an expander, for the optimum cable packages, it is really expensive. No one denies that. Have you ever tried a, a streaming service? Uh, I tried. I, I do Netflix. But I do, I, I, I actually, I do it off my uh, brother-in-law's. So I, so I don't actually pay for it. I'm one of his, because he's allowed 10, 10 people on his thing. Yeah, there's that's right. They all share in the password business. There's lots of ways to watch television online for little to nothing. You know, but like, 
like we're, we're, I'm sitting here with a 70-year-old father and an 87-year-old stepfather. They don't know how to do that. They just want to watch TV. Yeah, and someone else pointed out... It's it's, it's too complicated for them. Uh, Okay, fair enough. I didn't know we were talking about two elderly gentlemen. Uh, So there's also an opportunity to uh, go to the library and simply borrow DVDs. It's also an option to try to sprinkle up your viewing pleasure. Yeah, well, maybe DVDs haven't been around for a while. Yeah. I I don't don't think I have a DVD player anymore. Well, I'm just trying but to give I'm, you some. I'm options, just man. saying, it's just it's just horrible that the these big companies just fed off of people. Yep. Because we were, you know, everybody was. I know. I know it's a couple of years down down the line, but uh, you know they they fed off of everybody to you know to make them buy all these packages. Yeah, if you wanted to get the HBOs and the Craves of the world, yeah, it's, it was an add-on that didn't come with your basic cable package. So you're disappointed with the providers. Point taken. I understand, Rob. So there was the, those were my suggestions. Maybe explore a streaming service. Maybe explore some cheap options online. Maybe go to the library and borrow some DVDs of different uh, TV series over the years. Maybe just so that you can help end the boredom of uh, going up and down the menu and not finding anything that you want to watch. How's that? Yeah, no, no, that's that's it, Patty. You know, but you know, it shouldn't be like that. Well, you know, there's lots we, of things that should, shouldn't we, be the way they are with outfits like uh, the big three in the Telus Bell and Rogers world, because they really got us where they want us. Uh, even if you extend that to the, what we pay for our cell phone uh, data, it's just ridiculous when you compare it to other modern first world countries. Rob, I'm getting off to the break, but maybe consider one of those. Uh, three uh, options, and maybe that'll make the things a bit easier for all three of you fellas. All right, Patty. Thanks for, thanks for hearing, my, hearing my views. My welcome. Uh, my pleasure. You're welcome. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, I got hundreds of channels. There's nothing on. Let's take a break. When we come back, Adrian's in the queue to talk about uh, healthcare clinics in rural Newfoundland and Labrador, and Judy wants to talk about a missed diagnosis she got. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to the top of the board, line number one. Adrian, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. It's a little bit of winter. Yeah, <laughs> winter's here. As soon as Halloween came and went, boy, look out. Yeah. Patty, I had the misfortune last week of uh, cutting me tom with a with an electric grinder. And it was a fine gash, so I, so I went to the clinic here of our way. And, uh, walked, and the first thing they asked me was, uh, did I have an appointment? Now, here I was with fine gash blood coming out of me. Mm-hmm. I said, no, I don't have an appointment. She looked, asked for my name, and I told her, and she looked it up. She said, you're not a patient here, so we can't look at you. And I said, what do you mean you can't look at me? Well, we're not allowed. We're not allowed to take patients if we're not a regular regular patient here. And I said, uh, is there a doctor or a nurse practitioner in? Or in? And he hemmed and hemmed. He said, um, yeah, but uh, we're still not allowed. Well, I happened to uh, see a public health nurse in the building that I knew. I asked her, asked uh, the receptionist there, would you mind asking her if she'd wrap up my hand? So, good enough, she came out and took me in and she cleaned it up. And she looked at it and she said, 
I'll get Nurse practitioner now to look at that. So when she comes, she had to look at it. She said, that needs to be stitched. you got to go to St. John's. Now, here I was, bleeding away, nurse practitioner there, and he couldn't do nothing for me because I wasn't a patient. So I had to get in my rig, drove to St. John's, spent three hours in emergency, and lo and behold, a nurse practitioner, practitioner stitched me up. Yeah, I was now going to guess exactly that. Yeah. I mean, that's ridiculous. And it's not that they weren't allowed, as they just chose not to. I mean, they can accept new patients if they see fit, if they've got a space on the roster. And for someone who's got to, that requires stitches, you know, you would think that when the nurse practitioner came in, that that person could have just done it before you had to drive to town. So it's just a matter of uh, choice as opposed to they're not allowed. But you said to me they weren't allowed. So you know, I just like to put it out there. You know, we have people coming out of our communities every weekend or during the week. <laughs> just let them know if anything happens or if they have an accident or anything, there's no point of going down there. You get a board of your reading, go to St. John's or not call an ambulance one or other. What community are we talking about, sir? Well, I'm in Calvert. Okay. Up to shore, yeah. Yeah, up to shore, yeah. You know, so it was an hour's run. I was bleeding pretty good, but I made it. <laughs> How many stitches did you get? I got seven. Wow, okay. But anyhow, I just wanted to put it out there let people know what, what kind of services we're getting. Rolling up land or singing out about healthcare all over the place, pouring all kinds of money into it. No service. It's a waste of money. Uh, there's certainly a lot of communities that are struggling. I don't even know if the emergency room is reopening Whitburn yet. I mean, we've run into 20 odd weeks, if that's the case. <laughs> yeah, it's a big conversation, Adrian. I'm glad you didn't slice your tongue right off. Yep. Anyhow, boys, I'd let you know what it's all. I appreciate it. Take care. Thanks a lot, Adrian. Yeah, bye bye. Right, bye bye. Is there anything better than the Southern Shore accent? Seriously. Well, just before we get to this caller, uh, a gentleman has sent me a note saying he found a set of keys on Frank's Road, out CBS. House key, car key, and remote starter. So if you lost your keys in and around Frank's Road out in CBS, I know who has them, and I can share the number if you give me a buzz. Okay, let's go. Line number two. Judy, you're on the air. Hello? Hi, Judy. Hi, first-time caller. Um, love your show. Thank you. Um, I'm calling in to, well, I called Friday to speak to a lawyer on my situation. And the first thing she advised me was to call VOCM. <laughs> um, in 2004, I was diagnosed with epilepsy after fainting in a doctor's office in Carbonier. That doctor sent me to his colleague in St. John's, another doctor, and he diagnosed me with epilepsy. Deep down, my God, I knew I had fainted. I went to my family doctor. Everybody said, the doctor says you have epilepsy. You have epilepsy. Now, with a diagnosis of, ep of epilepsy, you automatically lose your driver's license for the first year. You take the medication. You show that you're seizure-free. You get your driver's license back. I did that 2004, 2005, got the driver's license back. The following year, I get another letter. You got to go for another EEG. You got to go for another medical. When I go for the medical, oh, you continue to take your medication, fine dandy. Problem with the medication was I couldn't drive with it. Even though the law said that if I was taking the medication and I was seizure free, I could drive. But the medication caused me to walk into walls. The rocks on the ground were shaking. My vision was off. My balance was off. Everything was off. I told my doctors, I really don't believe I have epilepsy. 
This went on for 18 years. In 2016, I ended up giving up the license because I knew I wasn't safe on the road while taking the medication. I stopped the medication. I had no seizures. 2019, I took a, a visit to the emergency room in St. John's at the Health Sciences Center. A doctor came out, and she had pulled my file from 2004, and she said, you know, there's nothing on that test that indicates you have an epilepsy. Okay, so I gave her a year or two to come up with what is wrong with me. I'm still walking into walls. I'm not on the medication now, but I'm still walking into the walls. I started in having muscle twitches throughout my body, thousands of them a day. My muscles move on their own. They're saying that I have something, like it's called fasciculations, but that's what it is. It's muscle movement. The neurons are firing within my brain. Um... This is hard. I'm sure it I is. had a child in 2007. I was diagnosed 2004. During that pregnancy, my family doctor, when I went in, found out I was pregnant, I was advised to terminate because the medication for the epilepsy would cause birth defects in my unborn child. I left his office that day and I walked into a Dominion store where I seen a teddy bear in aid of a child for spina bifida which is what the doctor said the birth defect would be in my child. I bought that teddy bear, and the teddy bear's name was on it. The name of the child was on that teddy bear. That's the name of my child today. I kept my child, and I called him after a teddy bear in aid of another child with spina bifida. My child was born, and he had uh, his little body was all squish. I was told he was going to be overweight. He was 4 pounds, 14 ounces. He had a misshapen skull, and his body was squished. He just he had surgery last year for scoliosis. He has ADHD. He has learning difficulties in school. He's failing everything, pretty much. And after Monday passed, I went in to confront this doctor. Did you make a mistake? I have another neurologist here who's saying you made a mistake. This doctor is saying he did not make a mistake. Okay, I said, are you saying I still have epilepsy? His response was, I'm here to treat sick people, so I'm going to have to ask you to leave. I was told to leave his office. Now, here I am. I called motor registration the following day, and I asked him the question again. If a doctor made a misdiagnosis and he's refusing to take it off my file, if I comes out and I get my driver's license back so I can continue on working, I haven't worked since 2016. I, don't, I can't drive. There's no metro out here. So, no, she said, if he does not remove it from your file, we will still send you those forms to get done, and you will still continue to make take the medication. Need to take the medication in order to have a driver's license. How is this province looking, in my view, like a doctor is giving someone a misdiagnosis that causes them to act impaired and telling them to get behind the wheel of a car while they're taking it? Something's wrong. It is. You said you spoke to a lawyer. I'm sorry to hear all of this, Judy. You say you spoke to a lawyer on Friday? I spoke to a lawyer. She said that uh, because it's been so long, it's 18 years, you have two years to file a claim. This is ongoing for me. I'm on assistance right now. I work from the age of 19 right up until I was, well, 2016. I'm 47 years old now. 
and I'm, I don't have a driver's license. It's been suspended twice because I refuse to take a medication that caused me to walk into walls. Yeah. How's your child? I know you described some of the complications in surgeries. He has trouble with walking and stuff. Like his legs are, one leg is like longer than the other. He's hip aphasia and scoliosis and learning difficulties. But he's doing well, considering. Well, I'm not sure exactly what to say here, but I'm glad they're doing well, considering all the complications. Poor child. And, boy, you know, when there's a... Uh, a time lapse between your misdiagnosis and the want to get some legal advice and for possible compensation. It's a real shame that you've ended up in this spot. Oh, boy, it's a terrible story, Judy. Terrible story. Uh, yeah. Like, but what do I do? I don't know. I one doctor, the, the doctor that's saying it's misdiagnosis, Last year, I asked her to write a letter to motor registration saying it's a misdiagnosis. She said, I can write a letter, but I can't put on it that it's a misdiagnosis. And, of course, my question was, why not? She said, well, I didn't make the diagnosis. The doctor who made the diagnosis is the one who got to remove it from your file. But he's refusing. He's got an ego. It must be an ego. Like he's saying, he did not make a mistake. He wasn't even willing to look at my file. I'm on his computer screen that day when I went in. It was up there for a 66-year-old woman. The woman who went in there before me, her file was still on his computer. He never even pulled my file. Yeah, you could be right. This could be a matter of not wanting to admit a mistake because these types of mistakes can indeed end up in some malpractice, uh, malpractice suits. So I don't know if there's a time limit set on that one as well, but this is a real shame to hear what's happened to you and your family, Judy. I appreciate your time. Would you like to tell us anything else before I take a break for the newscast? Yeah, for anybody else out there who's taken a drug called Tegretol for epilepsy, please look up the side effects of it. It's not just birth defects when you're pregnant. It also causes high lipid profile in your blood. I ended up with open-heart surgery. Oh, boy. Judy, you take good care of yourself. Stay in touch with the show. I will. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Boy, oh, boy. I mean, it... I mean, we know it does happen. We are talking about human beings making very complex diagnosis. But all that faith that people have in the white-coated doctor and they hear Judy's story, boy, that's that's a heartbreaker. Uh, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, plenty of time left to speak with you. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the program. As you heard off the top of the show, talking about it was spurred on by lettuce, but it went into, you know, growing more here in the province. Dan Rubin, the chair of the Food Producers Forum, made a good point and an important point because we always use these numbers. We only produce 10% of what we consume, so importing 90%. That's basically numbers used at the retail level, like at grocery stores. And so we are absolutely producing more of that. It's hard to capture all that data, but... You know, since there's been several suggestions that the province look at the hydroponic facility that was the canopy growth operation and what could be done inside that massive facility. Excellent question that we're going to try to get an answer to. And then, of course, people hear what they want to hear on this show or when you're listening to anybody on the radio or television. Ask me why I've been, quote-unquote, 
afraid <laughs> to bring up the public inquiry into the fact that the country, for the first time ever, invoked the Emergency Measures Act, which, of course, is nonsense because I've brought it up repeatedly, including this morning. So the fact of the matter is we're now entering into the final week of the inquiry. First couple of weeks focusing on the police, and then, of course, we heard from some of the uh, protest organizers. This week is a big one because people will now get an opportunity to hear from some key government officials, notably Emergency Preparedness Minister Bill Blair, the Public Safety Minister Marco Mendocino, Intergovernmental Affairs Minister LeBlanc, uh, Justice Minister David Lametti, Defence Minister Anita Anand, the Transport Minister Alagbra, and Finance Minister Christopher Freeland, as well as the Prime Minister, and a couple of members of his office. So, yeah, we haven't been afraid to talk about it. I don't even think anyone's even called on it, even though we've brought it up many, many, many times. So here's what happens next after we get through this week of testimony. The, it wraps on Friday. The inquiry then moves on to what they call the policy phase. At that point, they are going to host a bunch of roundtables and hear from experts and policymakers on issues related to the mandate of the inquiry itself. Then the Commissioner, Paul Rulo, he has to table his final report in Parliament by the 20th of February. So we're still a ways away from the final report being tabled in the HOC. But the fundamental question will remain is, what happens, you know, just be hypothetical, uh, that they, the commissioner says there's some justification for the Measures Act, the Emergency Measures Act, or there's not, then what? That's the question that nobody seems to have an answer to. And then someone just sent me an email and said, do I have any information about any uh, opportunity for more children's cold and flu medicine to be on the shelves? And we do. And this was announced last week uh, through Health Canada that the country has secured what they're calling foreign supply. Now, immediately people's minds went all the way to, well, is it China or what have you? And No, it's not. So there's one million bottles of this foreign-produced medicine coming to the country. We have seen the stories. We haven't seen them to the magnitude of, like, for instance, Ontario here in this province regarding the number of children presenting at the Janeway with RSV or the seasonal influenza or COVID. But there's still a bit of hacking cough and some colds out there, like there always will be at this time of year. But with the month-long months uh, long shortage of these medicines, thankfully there's a million bottles of on the way, both liquid ibuprofen and liquid acetaminophen. The uh, ibuprofen coming from the United States, acetaminophen coming from Australia. So to answer that lady's question, yes, there should be some relief coming. And as I mentioned off the top, when we see these types of shortages, some people's inclination is as soon as they see some on the shelves that they're going to gobble it up and maybe hoard more than they actually need at this moment in time. And, like always, that might leave some people without, and that's possibly unnecessary as well. So those two things are up for discussion if you are so inclined. Now, we're going to be speaking with the FFAW President Keith Sullivan here coming up sometime here this morning about the fact that for this year there will be zero fish stock, fish stock surveys done off Newfoundland and Labrador waters. So generally, the department does two surveys, one in the spring and one in the fall. Because of the issues regarding the aging vessels and the lack of replacement parts and trying to get the new vessels organized, we will not see any surveys done. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily flying blind, but of course the data is key. Whether it be for a legitimate, whether it be combination of catch rates and anecdotal evidence, and yes, the science to figure out what we should do with total allowable catch and individual quotas the next fishing seasons. 
but we won't have it from 2022. In fact, we haven't done, let's see here. Uh, in 2020, the pandemics up, uh, derailed it. The vessels were impacted by the 2021 surveys, and now nothing this year. So what they're focusing in on is what's called comparative fishing. Outgoing and incoming service vessels, what they do is they trawl side-by-side, side, uh, take note of performance and noise levels. They collect that data, and so apparently that has some import. Hopefully Mr. Sullivan can help fill in some of the blanks because what that means, insofar as uh, next year's total allowable catch, adjustments upwards or downwards, I really don't know, but hopefully Mr. Sullivan can fill in that particular blank. Okay, we are still on the Twitter, as wild as that is getting. We're VOCM up online. You can follow us there. Uh, email address is openline.fiosim.com. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Just before we get to the phone lines there. So there was a meeting this past Saturday in Stephenville regarding the World Energy GH2 project. Apparently it was packed house. So they did indeed provide residents some reports on the road network that's being established behind West Bay. Also, there was security preventing them from accessing it. But... This lady who was there says, no straight answers from the government, no media present. I was asked why I wasn't there, but of course, it's not really in my job description as, as you know to be a reporter and to be on the road like that. But though I do think, and you're right, lady, uh, man, that there should be some coverage of this because it's huge. And there's a big sense that this is already greenlit, period. So, if you were at the meeting, meeting this past Saturday evening in Stephenville regarding that wind proposal... Please do indeed tell us what you heard, what you were hoping to hear and did not hear, and just the general vibe amongst the folks in the area who seem to be quite concerned and understandably so. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the president at the FFAW. That's Keith Sullivan. Keith, you're on the air. Okay, yes. Good morning to you, Patty. Good morning to you. Now, this sounds like a very fundamental and simple question, but what are the real-life impacts of zero fish stock surveys being done in 2022? Well, we really don't know, but obviously it is is not good. Uh, you know, we could be end up fishing something we shouldn't be, or missing out on opportunities, which is probably uh, you know the, the the bigger concern when we don't have science. We tend to be tend to be cautious. So this today, I should say, uh, by the way, is World Fisheries Day. So you know, Happy World Fisheries Day to the people in Newfoundland and Labrador, where. Um, Despite us talking about a lot of the challenges like this one, uh, there's a lot of good things happening. We have tens of thousands of people involved in the fishery and doing well. And what's you know this year has been the most most valuable year we've had. So uh, I think we can be doing much much better in the fishery. But uh, you know, sometimes we stop to, to say that we have a lot of talented and skilled people in the fishery, inshore fish harvesters. Uh, even, even certainly those who market our product and process it, you know, uh, we have a lot to be thankful for that way. But uh, of course, we focus on our challenges. So, I'd, uh, I'll just stop and say that on November 21st. Well, fair enough. Uh, this one is a little bit of a off the beaten track uh, question, but there was a conservation group down in the United States that were putting out the warnings that there should be warning labels on uh, snow crab and lobster from this province because of the Atlantic right whale, even though there's only very rare sightings and zero entanglements. Did that have any impact? Uh, well, it, it can have impact. It really is not, is not good, uh, particularly when it's, you know, it's something that hasn't affected Newfoundland and Labrador fisheries. So this is an area where we really need, you know, our, our federal government uh, to really step up and push back on the organizations when they're saying, 
you know, uh, they're leading the world to believe that somehow people fishing snow crab and uh, and lobster in Newfoundland and Labrador are having an impact on right whale population. You know, the the very very rare presence of these whales, which I will say it's you know certainly important to protect, uh, you know, very endangered species, but they're not overlapping with our fisheries. And uh, you know, to to put out to the world, I mean that they are you should avoid these foods i mean this is is irresponsible by those groups but at the same time we can't control them but what we can control is you know government really standing up for people who are trying to make a living fishing and what we see more and more is that fish harvesters coastal communities are not been given enough uh focus in this country and it continues to be be a disappointment and back to the, the science this is another example you know, issues come up with doing these big surveys. Sometimes we understand that, but here what we have, I believe, is just uh, in not prioritizing, not investment, not caring enough about about our fisheries and the impact on the people here. You know, this this wouldn't happen in other countries. Actually, it was just in, in Norway, uh, having conversations with, with people around their fisheries. And, you know, we have a lot of the, the similar issues, but... The difference there uh, seems to be they have government who respect and support and want to grow and build their their coastal communities and their fisheries. Uh, fundamentally here, there seems to be just uh, left out in the cold from Ottawa oftentimes. And the provincial responsibility is to the fish processing companies, and they seem to not be supportive of, of the harvesting sector. So we're really caught in a place that's frustrating and, uh, you know, logic don't, don't work. And then some people end up surprised when we have a thousand people out on the steps of, uh, of, a, of a building or protesting. You have to get attention and it's difficult. Uh, so Fair enough. Again, sticking with science. The seal summit, I was trying not to be down in the mouth and dismissive of it, but we've had plenty of summits that didn't really get us anywhere. I know they're talking about expanding markets, which has to be number one, and innovation, even though I'm not 100% sure what that means. Did you come away optimistic at all? Because we know it's not just about a market for the seals. It's also the impact on other wild stocks. So what was your takeaway? Well, first of all, uh, you know, I was happy that they had the group assembled, you know. Uh, I, I think a lot of people, uh, you know, frankly went in with you know, relatively low expectations. But the point is that they were doing it, talking about some of the the information to clarify uh, more on the impact of seals on the ecosystem coming out. I think that's a positive. And really uh, getting access to the markets that, that exist because most of the case, our markets have been destroyed by, you know, you know artificial uh, barriers in many ways. So uh, I, I guess, you know, uh, I'd be some optimism and really want to work with people to be uh, to, to continue to find, you know, whether it's markets for the meat or pelts or other byproducts, you know, I think it's something we have to have to work on and, you know, we, we we could be kind of dismissive of work, but, you know, I think we have a responsibility too to, you know, push and be a part of the solutions. And and we, we've recognized this for a while. It's not easy, particularly when it comes to seals. But, you know, I thought there was uh, positivity coming out of the summit. And, and you, you, we just got to, it can't be a one-off and okay. And uh, so we did that and checked the box and forget about it. It needs investment uh, from uh, governments and the people in the industry. So hopefully it's a first step, Patty. 
Yeah, and, you know, I asked Minister Murray on this program, we've used our wild stock as a diplomatic bargaining tool, or seemingly so. And, you know, in relationship with the MOU signed with the Germans about green hydrogen, you know, my question to her was, when do we ever get anything back? Whether it be some of the total allowable catch from certain countries that are uh, foreign fleets are fishing it, or, you know, the expansion of markets because we are going to be giving you something you want. How about giving us something that we want? We, we never seem to use fish as anything but the giveaway as opposed to a, a tool to get something in return. Yep, and uh, you know, and that goes back to what I kind of said earlier. You know, within Canada, it seems the people who are living on the coasts and dependent on the ocean are, you know, becoming less and less important. I, I think we need uh, some some champions in a national uh, scale to really kind of promote promote our fisheries and get some some support. Sir, even in day to day, we don't get the, the supports from our own people. We we seem so. I mean, I think. Uh, there's there's so many so many opportunities and like I said it seems like uh, it's really put on the back burner what you know markets for seals you know again fundamental things like science so two years ago we understood the impacts of COVID there were so many things that we we didn't know didn't understand surveys didn't get done uh, you know I think we all understood and accepted that. Last year, we're surprised to find out that we couldn't do surveys because of mechanical issues, probably predictable, lack of investment. Uh, and luckily, in some species, we had uh, harvester surveys, which were like snow crab, our most valuable fishery, which allowed us to do uh, the assessment and actually get increases. And, you know, it was, it was incredibly valuable for people at a province. But we don't have enough examples of that. And then this year... Uh, we have new vessels coming online, so that's that that's good. But some of these problems should have been uh, predictable. We have issues with new vessels, and obviously issues with very old, and that takes uh, time and investment. So another year, three years in a row, uh, really unprecedented in recent times. And now we're unsure, really, what level the stock assessment is going to uh, to, to be involved. So I mean, I think that's just an example, I suppose, of of, of how important. The fishery in our province plays on a, on a national scale, and it's a, it's a continuous battle and fight, but we're going to continue uh, to do that, that's for sure. We have people in Ottawa today who are going to, going to certainly talk to the decision makers on World Fisheries Day and, you know, continue to try and prove this fishery. It's going to be around for a long time. You mentioned crab. So snow crab is the crab that we talk about. Is there a quota for Atlantic king crab or for the toad crab, which I know the boys used to uh, go get the toad crabs, but are there even quotas available for those two species? Well, we don't have uh, king crab here, uh, but the other two species that we have small fisheries for or have had are toad crab and rock crab. And they're... Uh, have not there have not been very big fisheries in in recent years you know there's certainly been some uh, you know Bonavista Bay and and toad crab for some time they had small fisheries so I think these are the opportunities you look at the, the cost of some of this this seafood these are the things that we have to focus on and develop uh, develop more and not just concentrate on on the big the big fisheries and and partially you know there's not much opportunity you know you got three or four big big uh, big companies that generally focus on some of the bigger ones that's the other thing we do need to develop uh you know more more diversity of species here we've done that to some degree but uh, i think we need to continue doing it and let people take whatever green crab they want i'll throw that in there <laughs> absolutely uh, last one so when dfo is asked about 
the lack of the surveys this year, one generally in the spring and one in the fall, they talk about the work they're doing with comparative fishing. What is that? And what do we get out of that? So I, I will say that, you know, absolutely, uh, the, the comparing the new vessels to the old vessels and uh, and and the, and the change in the gear, this comparison for these long time series, are absolutely, this is important. There's no doubt, in ba- doubt about that. I don't want to downplay that. Uh, so that is important. But at the same time, as I mentioned earlier, having uh, brand new vessels, they're bound to be working out the kinks. That's just anybody who's got a ship of that size dealing with it. It's predictable to have problems, and same as the old ones. So uh, it's not acceptable to say that we're doing comparative fishing and ignoring, or I wouldn't say ignoring the survey, but not completing the survey that is the main scientific survey for, or one of the main at least for like snow crab, all our ground fish stocks like cod, uh, for example. So not getting that done. I don't know where that's going to leave us. Uh, you know, I do think what we've been saying for some time, we need to get more information, more pillars just besides that survey. And, you know, the crab survey last year was an example of, you know, why we need more inputs in science and having those two key surveys instead of just trying to trying to stand on a, on a one-legged stool uh, makes it tough. So we need to get those other two or three pegs under us, and I think working with harvesters is the way to do it. Appreciate the time this morning, Keith. Thank you very much. Always good, Paddy. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Keith Sullivan. He's the president at the FFAW. It's time for the news. When we come back, we still have plenty of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Mike, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Mike, uh, good morning. Patty, I, I called uh, uh, to uh, make some comments on the SEAL Summit that occurred in St. John's just recently. Uh, I, I was able to find your tape on the minister with Joyce Murray uh, and uh, some really good comments there. But uh, she's very non-committal in it, understandably. First of all, kudos to Joyce Murray, the Minister of Fisheries, Federal Minister of Fisheries, for having the summit. Uh, I mean, uh, she uh, she took a lot of guts to do that. Not many people were behind that in the bureaucracy, believe me. And uh, they really did not want to be there. But she honored her commitment to Goody Hutchings, and she held it anyway. Um, I was just in the Mr. Hutchings there um, while I was waiting, or Ms., yeah, Mr. Sullivan, I'm sorry, while I was waiting. Uh, Patty, uh, he he framed it right. There weren't very high expectations uh, for the summit. I was at the summit. He, there weren't very uh, high expectations going into the summit. And uh, those expectations were met, certainly by me, um, in that uh, science, accurate science is so important in you know, the biodiversity of our oceans and everywhere else. Uh, but it was obviously clear that uh, that the Department of Fisheries Science had little or none. Sad part about it, Patty, is uh, that uh, that summit really, while it was on science, it actually should have been or could have been equally on markets. I think you and I have spoken about markets many times before. Uh, that's a fair point because the only way things are going to change is with an expansion of markets. But with like-minded people in the room, what does the discussion around markets even sound like? Because unless you're having these discussions with countries or trade organizations like the WTO, unless you're having those discussions with them, what would you have liked to have heard about markets anyway? Because you know everyone in the room would like to expand the market, 
but they're not the people making that particular point. Well, if you had a, a summit that included marketing, they would be there to have that discussion. That's the starting point for the markets is that you can't talk about it if the uh, government people in global affairs, uh, you know, foreign trade and trade barrier removal, this kind of okay. stuff are not in the room. And they weren't there. So, Patty, that was the big failure, the big letdown. I noticed we've had some coverage of, you know, we're going to see greatness again. We're going to make some, you know, some pile of meat products to go out and there's a glorious market for seal oil. And and I, I and 35, I think, countries were quoted one article. I'd, I'd like to see them. <laughs> I'd like to I'd like to know who they are. Patty, that's just not the case. You you you, you know we we've had a, an approval of four hundred thousand and no TAC now, but we're not getting any. We're not you know the, the harvesters are not cut out. It's like uh, Keith Sullivan said a little while ago. It's a very expensive undertaking right now with the cost of fuel, uh, the cost of insurance, uh, you know the danger to your vessel to your crew. Why would you go out if you've got nowhere to sell it for a profit? Why would you do that? And you got nowhere to sell it for a profit because there are no markets. And that's what the that's why yet uh, it's like a dog chasing its tail, you know? Anybody who's had a dog and pets and and loving pets know that you get the dog to chase the tail and then pull whatever it is you got them chasing away and they'll keep chasing the tail. And that's what we're doing on the sealing industry. Fisheries did its commitment and they did it well. They did a good job of organizing it. But the seal science part of it, it was the tool they used us to get us to chase the tail so that we don't pay attention to what's going on in the marketing aspect of it. That's a dismal failure. And unless, um, you know, FFAW gets involved in that, and everybody knows, Patty, that this is part of a conservation issue now, that uh, all, this, all the whatever the, the seals are eating and they're all forage fish, that's part of a big conservation and biodiversity study and the climate change people. It's hard to find a spot on the ocean now that you're not going to bump into a scientist doing some study for climate change. And uh, unless FFAW and others become engaged in that part of it as well, they're not going to do very successful on the ceiling end of it. And if they're not on the ceiling end of it, Patty, they're not going to be on a lot of other species because COP15 in Montreal in early December is going to be a giant cop-out. You watch what happens with the bans on the species that are coming from that inaccurate science. It has long galled me, the trade decisions that have been made here, because they were basically made on the lies that were spoon-fed to these organizations, like the World Trade Organization, because... Look, not only is it a humane regulated harvest, uh, as opposed to the white coats being beaten to death out on the red blood on the white ice, which is how they view that particular hunt. So at the exact same time, they're fine and dandy and happy with foie gras. They're fine with bullfighting, but they're not fine with seal product. It's just amazing to me. Help me understand, Patty, why it's not challenged. Why has the government of Canada not filed any, not one, some performance shorts of enough, but not one challenge. We've had multiple negotiations on CETA, uh, on the, on the U.S., uh, Mexico, Canada trade deals. Not once has Foreign Affairs Canada cha- challenged this. Not once. So tell me why. Help me understand. Maybe, maybe I'm too slow and I don't see this, but why is it challenged? 
I don't know. It's a fair question. And it's, you know, some of the things don't, just don't even make sense anyway. You know, if we're talking about importing for consumers in the United States or in the European Union or what have you, that's one thing. But I'm going to see my seal skin boots confiscated if I try to fly into the United States with them on. Why would that even be a consideration? Like, that, those things make absolutely zero sense. Like, remember that story a few years ago? The lady had her seal skin purse confiscated. Like, it's, it's her personal property. She's not bringing it down to sell it to some unsuspecting American. She's carrying her, her lipstick and her wallet and her ID and her, her old stuff in the purse. I, I, you know, these types of things are just so bizarre. Patty, you're, you're probably too young to remember this, and this is a tribute to you. Uh, way back when, with the Daily News, uh, there was a story, a headline story, about this uh, grandmother, this wonderful lady who had just come through brain surgery and everything, was going down to the States and had a couple of cans of seal meat in, uh, in her luggage for her son, and uh, and these gun-carrying border people seized it from her because it was a protected species. And, you know, you know that, still, that still exists today. You're right, you lose your boots, and, uh, and, and there's no reason for it, none. The only reason for it is the government of Canada, and I'm so sorry, the, the Liberal members of Parliament have got to say this, and for, because it's absolutely useless in any of this, the Provincial Department of Fisheries uh, have done nothing. They just sat there in their hands. They haven't done anything, no pressure. You know, so if you think you know, this is going to be, if we got six to ten million seals, Petty, eating one and a half to two tons of fish and seafood every year, and uh, and you think we got a problem with the with the stock levels now? Just sit tight. It's going to get a lot worse. So that's what it's all about. No, Mark can't sell it. Why catch it? It's all pretty frustrating. In some corners, people say this conversation is over. Nothing's ever going to change. Then I had like Dion Dakins from Carino on last week saying he's really encouraged by all this. So I suppose we're all in the exact same boat. It remains to be seen as to whether or not this was smoke and mirrors or a real legitimate opportunity that all hands and all different levels of governments and organizations will take seriously and try to make some change. So I guess we'll all find out at the same time. I, I certainly hope so. I got to compliment Dion Dakins. He's a he's a great guy, a great worker. Of course, Carino was put together from you know Canada, Reaver, and Norway. That's where the name Carino came from, and of course that that was originally North uh, Norwegian based, and they've had a successful uh, business in this business for decades. And uh, and Dion Dakins is doing a, what appears to be a yeoman's job at keeping it that way. So I'm really, really pleased uh, for him, for the industry. Here, here. Appreciate the time, Mike. Thanks very much, Patty. Have a great day. The very same to you. Take care. All right, bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if anything is going to change, but that's the that's the hope, certainly for those who are in the industry. Uh, let's take our final break of the morning. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, uh, again, just replying uh, over the airwaves to some of the email concerns, questions, uh, swipes and swats and stuff. So uh, a fellow called a little while ago complaining that there's nothing on TV. Okay. I mean, we hear those types of stories uh, sometimes. And my suggestions were pretty fundamental. You know, whether or not you go to the library and borrow some DVDs just to switch it up, maybe some series that, are, that you liked in the past that you'd like to have a little rewatch or something new, and or uh, considering a streaming service. To which <laughs> someone replied that, you know, the summary or the paraphrase is, how dare I suggest that he spend money on something? It's not my money. It's not your money. Yeah, no, it's not my money. 
I mean, I didn't tell him he had to do anything. It's just a possibility that, you know, you might find a couple of programs on Crave or Prime or Netflix or something that can spare you the monotony of the the uh, the cable guide as you have depending on your package so no he can do as he sees fit it's not my issue right okay and uh, all the time getting questions about some of the money's going out the door from the government on a variety of things and the most common email request or question i get now of course is about the five hundred dollars now i have no earthly idea when you're going to get yours let me say that right off the bat they did indeed start the process of mailing out the checks, and there are some questions to be, out, be asked about mailing them out in the first place. So what the issue is, is for those who are the lowest income earners, your checks will go, be going out first. So if you make $124,900, you will be the last people to get it. That's how that goes. Now, there is a lot of consideration. They say that some 392,000 uh, people in the province will get these checks, somewhere between 500 and 250 dollars but for some folks who are in probably the most desperate need of the monies one thing they may not have filed their taxes and secondly they might not even have a mailing address so there are going to be some people inevitably fall through this pretty big crack so there's fair questions to be asked also when it comes to mailing things out we had a caller earlier asking about the covid rapid tests that were in other parts of the country during the pandemic, you could get them for free in a variety of commonly visited places, from the coffee shop to the library to all kinds of different retail outlets. Free. Just take them. Here we didn't do that, of course. They were only free to people in the school system, long-term care facilities, congregate living facilities, and everybody else who wanted one had to go buy one. And, of course, people just eventually said, I'm not doing that. So the concern offered by this caller was the cold weather and whether or not it could jeopardize a rapid test kit and i mentioned to him that i've had that question posed to me so i read a couple of links about it and it wasn't as easy as yes it's going to destroy the test it kind of depended on the product but the average concern was when the temperature drops below three degrees it can indeed jeopardize the test and when it drops below zero it's very likely that the test can be compromised if it's out in the mailbox for any length of time on top of that, you know, the consideration of the expiry date. So the they have a shelf life of about 16 months, but we don't know exactly when some of these kits were made and purchased. So you also have to be aware of the expiry date. Fellow sent an email and he said that the one that he just got, I think he went and bought, the expiry date is about two months away from now. And then it's, of course, the consideration of whether or not people are going to use them and the potential for false positives is the expense of sending them out and whether or not they are going to be expired now they probably should not be expired but consider this the the pardon me the country already bought the tests so that's the way that that has worked throughout so they bought however many millions of these rapid test kits and we get our percentage based on per capita so we would get 1.4 percent of the test kits just like we got 1.4 percent of the vaccines so they're bought and paid for. The only consideration now is whether or not they let them go bad or to expire or to do what we can to get them in the hands of people who may indeed want to test. The next question being asked by some is, sure, what's even the benefit here? Well, with the prevalence of COVID in the community, it's very likely the concerns regarding sensitivity and specificity. There's enough COVID out there that you should indeed 
a more reliable uh, test result than, you know, how Dr. Fitzgerald used to say, we don't have that, that much uh, COVID, and so consequently these are of little value. But I guess if you wake up one day and you're just feeling generally unwell, and you have the sniffles and the cough, maybe a slight fever, there's a difference into having the common cold versus having COVID and the risk for the rest of your family and or your friends or Nan or whatever the case may be. So I suppose that's the rationale behind people still wanting to get the test. But ultimately, even pre-pandemic, the common sense of if you're unwell, stay home, still kind of leads the league, right? You know, just like... The precautions with uh, keeping yourself uh, from being sick with the fundamentals of washing your hands, sure. But if you don't feel well, regardless if you have seasonal influenza, COVID, or one of the other respiratory illnesses that are going around, I guess the concept is still pretty clear. You know, first things first, regardless of what you might have, if you don't feel well, keep it to yourself. Stay home. All right, let's see here. Checking on the Twitter feed. You know, I don't know. I don't check my follower account all the time, but I... Just recently saw there was a pretty big drop, and I don't know what's that about. I think people might be leaving the platform simply because of some of the Musk-related shenanigans that are ongoing. I don't see a huge difference in my feed. So anyway, we're still there for now. We're VOCM Open Law and follow us there. I do have a request. There is a family that are out in Paradise. They have some toys and some furniture, a bed in particular, that they're donating to a family of newcomers. The problem is these people don't have a truck. So the newcomer family are indeed in the city of St. John's. So if you're in paradise and have a normal commute into town for one reason or another, if you have a truck and you would like to bring in these toys and this bed to the family who are waiting for them, that would be much appreciated. So if you can do that, just let me know. I will give your the, me, the person who has the bed and the toys. I'll give uh, you their number, and you can coordinate it. So if you have a truck and you can help make this delivery to a family of newcomers from Paradise to St. John's, please let me know so I can let this person know. All right, good show. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. Talk in the morning. Bye-bye.